The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Voters and advocacy groups in more than half the states are fighting to remove former President Donald Trump from state ballots under the disqualification clause of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which states that no person shall hold office if they have previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States and engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution. But secretaries of state, like Minnesota's Steve Simon, say they can't enforce the 14th Amendment on their own. The ones who are going to make the legal calls about who engaged in what conduct and whether it rises to the level of constitutional disqualification, that's what a court will do. But so far, courts in Colorado, Michigan and Minnesota have refused to disqualify Trump. In fact, after a five-day trial, Colorado Judge Sarah Wallace found that Trump did engage in insurrection during the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, but said he was not covered by Section 3. Here to help explain it all is elections law expert Richard Brofault, a professor at Columbia Law School. Rich, tell us about these legal challenges under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So there is a series of challenges that are being brought to former President Trump's eligibility to be a candidate for president because of his actions during the course of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And the real question is whether or not that is an insurrection. This has to do with a provision of the 14th Amendment that was adopted in the aftermath of the Civil War that was intended to keep former U.S. officials who then joined the Confederacy from being eligible to serve in U.S. office again. It specifically says that for certain people, and one question is who's covered by it, if they engaged in insurrection, that's the key language, if they engaged in insurrection against the Constitution of the United States, they are ineligible to hold certain offices of the United States. And so a number of people have argued that former President Trump, because of his activities and inactivities on January 6th, falls within that prohibition of being eligible to be president again. And so this has led to extended academic arguments and now a series of lawsuits. And these lawsuits raise a bunch of questions. Is what happened on January 6th an insurrection? Did the president engage in the insurrection by various speeches he gave and statements he made and actions he took and didn't take going up to and on on January 6th? And another question that turns out to be surprisingly complicated is whether he's one of the people who is prohibited from holding office again, because the language Section 3 of the 14th Amendment uses is no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or an elector for president or vice president or hold any office under the United States. And the question that has come up is whether the president is somebody who holds an office under the United States. And although it may seem pretty obvious that the president obviously holds an office under the United States, Many people have argued that the presidency is distinct and is not simply an office under the United States, but is its own thing. 
This Colorado judge, Wallace, issued the first legal ruling that concluded that the former president had incited insurrection through his actions on January 6th and that the First Amendment doesn't protect his actions. But then she went on to find that Section 3 doesn't cover presidents? That's correct. That's right. So, yes, that's absolutely right. She uh, basically said that what happened on January 6th was an insurrection, which is a violent attack on the government of the United States, and an official action of the United States, which was counting the electoral votes, that President Trump engaged in the insurrection through the speeches he gave inciting the activity and his general you know, buildup in the days before January 6th of a sense amongst his supporters that something needs to be done to block the counting of the electoral vote. And yes, the various statements he made, she concluded, were not protected by the First Amendment because they were intended to incite violence. But then she concluded, that he's not somebody subject to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, because Section 3 of the 14th Amendment refers to a senator, a representative in Congress, an elector for a president, or any other office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state. And the question comes up is whether or not the presidency is an office under the United States. And although intuitively, it might seem that the presidency is the ultimate office under the United States. She concluded that the presidency is not, and she gave a couple of reasons for that. One is the way the amendment is written, it's kind of written by naming some specific offices and kind of level of seniority for a senator than representative, and sort of noteworthy it doesn't actually say president. And then she notes that there are several other provisions in the Constitution that distinguish between the president as a distinctive position and various kinds of offices and civil offices. And so she concluded that the presidency is itself not covered by the 14th Amendment, Section 3. Trump's lawyer, Scott Gessler, referring to the judge's conclusion that Trump engaged in insurrection, said it was a little bit unusual for her to spend a lot of time talking about that and then at the end rule that the 14th Amendment didn't apply. It is interesting. The opinion is 102 pages long, and some of that is just sort of procedural stuff, but she doesn't actually get to this question of whether or not the presidency is an office under the United States or an office covered by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment until about page 95 of this 102-page opinion. So it does seem a bit odd. I guess you could say that obviously she's not the final say. She is just the lower court judge. It's going to go up through the Colorado court system and maybe ultimately to the U.S. Supreme Court. And so maybe in defense of what she did is she basically says, well, if you reverse me on the question of whether or not the presidency is an office covered by this, I've made findings on everything else that's relevant because other people have argued either that January 6th didn't rise to the level of an insurrection, it was a riot, but not as serious an insurrection, or that President Trump didn't engage in the insurrection, that all he did was give speeches and make statements, but he didn't actually engage in the insurrection. So she basically said, you know, in some sense, if you look at the text of the amendment, it really requires three things, that there be an insurrection, that the person had be engaged in it, and that it applied to the presidency. And so she has made rulings that it was an insurrection and that he did engage in it, but that the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to him. So conceivably, a higher court, an appeals court or the Colorado Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court could conclude that the presidency is covered, in which case they'd have her findings on the other two issues. All the cases 
you know, trying to get him off the ballot via the 14th Amendment. Have they all failed? They're all in early stages. So maybe it's more accurate to say none has succeeded. Okay. Um, but they're all at fairly early stages. I mean, the election's coming up soon, and right now the only real question is, is being on the primary ballot. And some people have argued, well, the primary is premature. It's really on about the general election. But, yeah, there are, there are challenges percolating in a number of states. Certainly nothing has succeeded yet, but I don't think there's been a definitive ruling by the highest court of any state yet either. And does this seem like something the Supreme Court should take up? It's obviously an incredibly important question. At the moment, given the lack of any law on this, you know, the Supreme Court usually only comes in after there's been a, you know, a final lower court judgment, and especially if there's been some disagreement. This is something that they might want to settle. I mean, I think the real anxiety that many people have is what happens when, let's say, Trump wins, but members of Congress don't think that they should certify his election because some members of Congress think that he violated the 14th Amendment. And what happens if this becomes an issue January 6th of 2025? Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, I'll continue this conversation with Columbia Law School professor Richard Brafault, and we'll talk about the Eighth Circuit's startling decision that would be a death blow to the Voting Rights Act. I'm June Grasso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. One of the most Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor Data Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com/slash future investor slash radio important pieces of civil rights legislation in our history. The Voting Rights Act was signed into law in August of 1965 by President Lyndon Johnson. Today is a triumph for freedom as huge as any victory that's ever been won on any battlefield. But the Supreme Court gutted a core part of that landmark law in 2013, and now a ruling by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals threatens to deal a death blow to the act. I've been talking to Columbia Law School professor Richard Brafault. Rich, would you say the Voting Rights Act is the most important piece of federal legislation protecting voting rights today? Oh, yes. The Voting Rights Act of 1965, as it meant in 1982, is the number one federal statute protecting voting rights. And tell us what happened in 2013 and what's left of the act before we get to what's happened to it recently. So the, the Voting Rights Act of 65, as significantly meant in 82, had many provisions, but two of them really stood out. One was the, what's called Section 5, which had this concept of preclearance. And it basically said, that for certain problem jurisdictions, uh, jurisdictions which have a serious track record of violating voting rights, as proven by certain tests in the statute, when they change their voting laws, that has to be pre-approved, pre-cleared is the language the statute uses, either by the Department of Justice or by a federal court before they, it comes into effect. And it kind of reverses the presumption. It says for those problem jurisdictions, they have to prove that their new law or their new change in voting practice or procedure does not burden 
minority voting rights. So the burden is actually on the, the state or the local government to show that they're not inflicting any harm. In 2013, the Supreme Court struck down the part of the statute that provided the definition of the jurisdictions that were subject to this special treatment. They were called covered jurisdictions. And the court said that Congress basically had failed to update the formula that decides what a covered jurisdiction is. It was last updated in the 1970s. And the court said it simply cannot be right that that's the right formula now in a statute which the substance of the statute was as most recently updated in 2006. So what the court said in 2013 is that provision, that preclearance provision, it is technically still on the books, but it has nothing to operate on because the provision that it works with, which is the definition of the covered jurisdictions, is invalid. So with that decision in 2013, the Supreme Court eliminated preclearance. Preclearance is technically on the books, but there's nothing for it to do. The other major provision of the act is called Section 2, and that's the one that basically is used to challenge voting rules around the country, which are either intentionally discriminatory or have a discriminatory impact. And really, for the parts of the country that were never under Section 5, Section 2 was where the action was. And since 2013, that was for all of the country. Section 2 is where the action is. Now, in Section 2, the burden is on a plaintiff to show that a state or local law is discriminatory in intent or in effect against groups protected by the act, which are primarily based on race or language minority status. But nonetheless, Section 2 has been, particularly after the 2013 decision that's known as Shelby County, Section 2 is clearly the major, by far the major provision of the act for enforcing voting rights. And so now, I would say out of the blue, a two-to-one ruling of the Eighth Circuit by a Trump appointee and a George W. Bush appointee with another Bush appointee in dissent says that only the federal government can bring suits to vindicate voting rights under Section 2. Right. Where did this come from? So their argument is that Section 2, which makes all sorts of voting practices and procedures illegal, doesn't explicitly say that people who are injured by these practices and procedures have a right to bring a lawsuit, what's known as a private right of action. The statute prohibits, that basically declares that various kinds of voting practices and procedures which are discriminatory are illegal, but it doesn't explicitly literally say that people who are injured by that can bring a lawsuit. Now, since the time of the enactment of this statute, and especially since it was beefed up, the statute was actually significantly beefed up by Congress in reaction to a Supreme Court decision in 1982. This statute has been used for private claims, I don't know, hundreds of times, which have been adjudicated by courts, including by the Supreme Court as recently as earlier this year, the Allen v. Milligan decision. So it has been used many, 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 many times. But according to the Eighth Circuit majority, the Supreme Court has never literally said that there's a private right of action. They've just assumed it. And in that Allen case, Justice Thomas, in his dissent, also raised this as a question about whether or not there really is a private right of action. So I think he, in that case, in some earlier cases, may have planted the seeds of doubt. But as I say, until now, I think there have been hundreds of cases in the district courts, the courts of appeals, which have assumed that there's a private right of action. And even 
at least a number of cases, and it's probably, I'm not sure if it's single digits or double digits, of cases in the Supreme Court which have assumed a private right of action. And this is the first case that has literally said, no, we don't think it's there. And the fact that there have been these many, many, many cases, assuming that it's there, we don't care about those because nobody ever literally worked it through and held that there's a private right of action. And Justice Gorsuch has also referred to whether private plaintiffs could sue under Section 2 as, quote, an open question. Wendy Weiser of the Brennan Center for Justice has called these comments by the two justices bat signals that they're open to considering novel theories to undermine voting rights. And maybe the lower court judge, a Trump appointee who came up with this, got the signal. Now, are these judges claiming that they're following precedent because this wasn't specifically addressed, even though, you know, there's case after case after case after case where private groups sue? Right. I think I would rephrase that to say they claim that they're following the text of the statute, the text of the statute and nothing more, and that they're not bound by any inconsistent precedent because there's no precedent that literally says the statute does create a private right of action. So I think that's how they would put it. This is consistent with kind of the dominant approach to statutory interpretation in the current Supreme Court and federal courts, which is what's called textualism. We're just going to read the statute and see what's there. And they don't see this literal language there, as opposed to seeing that the structure of the statute, it's the purpose of the statute was designed to enable people to protect their voting rights. In their view, there is not a specific little bit of text that says it. It seems like a very, very narrow argument that ignores everything going around. Sort yeah. of. Yeah. No, it's a very, it's a very technical argument, but it is an argument that I'd say resonates with some of the arguments that have that have really persuaded the Supreme Court in other areas, not voting rights. This idea of the private right of act. That I mean, this has come up in other settings where Congress passes a law that prohibits certain activity or provides for certain benefits, uh, but doesn't literally give people the right to sue if those are denied. Maybe the assumption is that the attorney general will sue or a federal agency will sue. And for a long time, the Supreme Court was willing to imply private rights of actions as necessary to vindicate the rights, provide the benefits that Congress authorized. In more recent years, the Supreme Court has cut back on that and has been less inclined to find a private right of action in a statute that doesn't literally say that. Now, if this decision is affirmed, it would leave it to the Justice Department or state AGs to bring these cases. And in Republican states, it doesn't seem likely that an AG would bring an action to enforce the Voting Rights Act. So does the Justice Department have enough people and resources to bring these kinds of actions? Right. I mean, it's not clear the Justice Department would have enough staff to bring it. And then there might be Justice Departments that are not interested, that their philosophy is not inclined to bring these cases. We can imagine that happening, too. So, yeah, this is a real, this is a real body blow to any effectiveness of the Voting Rights Act. If people can't sue if they believe that there's a violation, the opportunities to enforce these rights will be drastically diminished. What's the next step for the plaintiffs here? It's certainly likely that the plaintiffs in this case will ask for what's called an on-bank, 
which is to say this was a panel of the Eighth Circuit. You know, the, the courts of appeals generally have a dozen or 15 or more judges, but they sit in groups of three. And so this was a group of three judges from the Eighth Circuit who split two to one on this. This is the kind of issue that certainly is likely or certainly is a great candidate to go to an on-bank decision where the entire Eighth Circuit sits and decides. This is certainly the sort of issue that go to the Supreme Court ultimately. But I think before it even gets to the Supreme Court, there's a good chance that it'll be subject to an on-bank review by the entire Eighth Circuit. And the Eighth Circuit is a very conservative circuit with 16 of its 17 judges being Republican appointees. Thanks so much, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brafalt of Columbia Law School. Coming up next, federal public defenders are combining their forces to make arguments at the Supreme Court. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com. Mr. Adler. Mr. Chief Justice, it may please the court. The 922G offense is what triggers ACCA's penalties. The government therefore agrees that courts must apply ACCA's criteria in effect at the time of the 922G offense, not the prior conviction. Assistant Federal Public Defender Andrew Adler made his third trip to the U.S. Supreme Court lectern on Monday to argue that his client, Eugene Jackson, should not be subject to a 15-year mandatory minimum because of his previous state cocaine-related conviction. Adler is just one of the federal public defenders who have argued more than once before the justices. That's because with the Supreme Court hearing fewer and fewer cases each term, the criminal defense attorneys, like most first-time Supreme Court advocates, face a lot of pressure from elite law firms to turn over their cases to advocates who are more experienced before the court. Joining me is Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson, who's written about this. Tell us about the pressure that federal public defenders and other first-time advocates have to turn their Supreme Court cases over to experienced advocates? Well, it's not a very good kept secret that whenever a case is granted by the justices, the advocate, if they're not a Supreme Court veteran, will face intense pressure. You know, they'll get calls, emails from large law firms, from SCOTUS veterans, offering to take their case for free to help them out. But the help often means to argue the case. And so it's one way that, you know, as the justices are granting fewer and fewer cases, it's one way for advocates to, you know, show their faces in front of the justices frequently. And it's one that sometimes gets a lot of people to turn over their cases, but the federal defenders have tried to keep their cases when it makes sense within the offices themselves. There's even been criticism from some justices. You wrote about Justice Sonia Sotomayor in 2014, said it was malpractice for any lawyer who thinks this is my one shot before the Supreme Court and I have to take it. Have other justices commented as well? Yes, there was similar criticism from Justice Kagan around the same time 
where she talked about, uh, you know, the one group consistently who was getting for advocacy in front of the justices were criminal defendants. And that, of course, includes federal public defenders. She talked about the same thing of people wanting to have their one shot in front of the Supreme Court. And we've seen a lot of first time advocates, a lot of advocates in these criminal cases who do not do, you know, the best job for their client. But that's not always the case. And again, you know, that's something that the federal defenders are trying to make sure doesn't happen in their cases. And the Supreme Court bar is an elite group. Is it an elitist group, too? (laughs) Well, that's what, you know, one of the federal defenders told me is that there is a bit of elitism that goes on this idea that, you know, only certain people can do this. I mean, you know, these federal defenders, they are appellate specialists. They are criminal specialists. They argue in front of a lot of the other courts of appeals. So it's not as if they don't have experience. But one thing that they do often have is a real clear understanding of the criminal law and the way that it happens practically. And we actually saw that in action when a federal defender took the lectern this week and argued a case. He was able to give the justices really a practical on-the-ground look about you know, what it is that criminal defense attorneys advise their clients of and what sort of those interactions look like. Something that, you know, a Supreme Court veteran, for all the wonderful things they can do, probably couldn't do that. Was that Andrew Adler? That was, yes. And this was actually his third time uh, at the Supreme Court lectern. So he's one of a few federal defenders that have gone to the Supreme Court and argued more than once. Yeah. And a few people mentioned that right off the bat, he presented this hypothetical to the justices that really grabbed them. It did. And so, you know, it was in his opening two minutes, the Supreme Court, it doesn't sound like a long time, Um, But the Supreme Court has said they're going to give advocates an uninterrupted two minutes. And it's kind of when the advocates can make their best arguments without getting interrupted. And in that two minutes, he mentioned this specific hypothetical. And it came up again and again and again from the justices. They asked the other attorney about it. So he was really making good use of that first two minutes of uninterrupted time. And, you know, ultimately, I think it'll probably will be the way that the case goes and could end up in the opinion. And we will talk about that in a moment. So, Kimberly, do you think that there's an advantage? There are some advocates that have been up there so many times, the justices know them and perhaps know them even because, you know, they attend functions with them and things like that. I mean, do you think that's an advantage when the Supreme Court knows who you are, like, for example, former solicitor generals? You know, it can be. I think one of the things that people tell me is the biggest advantage of, you know, those repeat players at the Supreme Court is that they know what the justices are looking for. They know that, you know, when a justice gives you a hypothetical, you don't fight the hypothetical. You answer Mm -hmm. their question, no matter how ridiculous it is, no matter how much it hurts your argument, and you just sort of do the best you can. And so it's sort of like having a a home field advantage, is the way that one advocate put it to me, is that you, you just know what to expect from them, and know what's going to be the most helpful to them. Tell us about the Defender Supreme Court Resource and Assistance Panel. What is it doing? So this is probably the uh, the worst acronym uh, <laughs> name. It's called DSCRAP. Um, but DSCRAP is really just a group of federal defenders that do have some high court experience. You know, it started out very informally, but after some of the criticism that we talked about, you know, from the justices, Federal defenders from around the country sort of said, okay, we need to do something about this. We need to make sure that we aren't, you know, these people who the justices are talking about giving poor advocacy. And so, you know, what they do is to varying degrees, 
They will reach out to the person whose case got granted. They will help with strategizing a bit. They'll help with brief writing. They'll do moot court and just sort of give advice to help them kind of alleviate that home field advantage and let them know what it is that the justices expect. And so it's it's sort of like a, a homegrown support group. But if Andrew Adler's argument is any indication, it seems to be doing a really good job. You point out something which I hadn't thought about, that it seems often like a David and Goliath situation because the federal public defenders are almost always facing attorneys from the Solicitor General's office who get a lot of chances to argue. They do. I mean, you know, these are people, you know, there are maybe three or four people who currently argue at the court who have argued more than 100 cases. All of them spent time in the Solicitor General's office because that's the place you go if you want to get a lot of experience with Supreme Court advocacy. You know, they can argue two, three, four cases in a term, each individual attorney in that office, whereas, you know, some advocates who are, we consider veterans, can go years without having a case before the Supreme Court. So it really is a lot like David Goliath in in that sense. I know there are a lot of Supreme Court clinics at, at law schools around the country. Do any other clinics offer the same kind of help to federal public defenders? They do. And actually, you know, DSCRAP hooks up with a lot of these clinics. So, you know, the case that we've been talking about, they hooked up with the Supreme Court clinic out in Stanford. A lot of law firms do offer support. Sidley Austin, who actually argued the companion case to this case that we're talking about, often, you know, is involved with DSCRAP and federal defenders. So they get a lot of support from the outside as well. And, you know, I think it's, it's really about finding people who are willing to help you out, but not mean help means take the argument away. So there is that outside help, too. Yeah, I'm going to say that D-Scrap is for scrappy defense lawyers. That's what it stands for. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about the case that Andrew Adler argued in. And, you know, the cases involving the Armed Career Criminal Act always seem to be (laughs) so technical that I often ignore them, (laughs) but they're important. (laughs) Tell us about this one, what the issue was. Sure. So the Armed Career Criminal Act, you know, has some really stiff sentences for people who illegally possess a gun. So think felon or somebody who is convicted of major, you know, drug crimes. And that's actually what's at issue here is that, you know, if you are convicted of three, quote, serious drug crimes, and then you're convicted of illegally possessing a firearm under ACA, there's a 15-year mandatory minimum, which is, I mean, that's a lot. And so, The question here is, how do we decide who's eligible for that 15-year minimum? And it's really a question, a temporal question. You know, is the relevant time period that we're trying to see if these crimes are serious, is it when those crimes were committed, or is it now today as we're deciding your firearms case? So it is really a technical question, but at a very high level of generality, that's at issue. And so the justices had basically three choices? They did. And, you know, just to make it even more convoluted, all three of these choices are being employed um, to some extent in the lower federal appellate court. So that's probably one of the major reasons that the court took this case was just to provide some, some clarity. But the different times, it can either be, you know, do we look to see if this crime was serious when the drug crime occurred? Or do we look to see if the crime is serious when the firearms 
conviction occurred, or do we look to see if the drug crime was serious at the time of the sentencing? And as I said, all of those rules are sort of being employed, you know, throughout the country. And so the Supreme Court's going to have to pick one. And it really seems like they're not going to side with the government who is arguing for, you know, the most backward facing that is looking at whether or not this was serious when the person committed the drug crime. And so it seems like they're not going to go for the, the, the most serious or the least. They're going to go in the middle. Is that the point that Adler was arguing? That was. So, you know, him and uh, an, another attorney were sort of arguing on the same side, but for different standards. It looks like that side is going to win, but which standard they choose, you know, it's probably going to be something the justices sort out in conference. One thing I thought was really interesting about the argument that Justice Gorsuch pointed out is that none of those rules are necessarily better for criminal defendants because, you know, the laws can change either favorably to defendants or they could change unfavorably to them. So, you know, it's not as if one rule is better for criminal defendants as a whole. And as Justice Gorsuch put it, you just kind of have to take the bitter with the sweet. Is there a reason why the Armed Career Criminal Act comes up? There were so many issues about it. Yeah, the Armed Career Criminal Act. I mean, every term we have, <laughs> you know, several cases about it. The Supreme Court, you know, several years ago, eventually just kind of threw up its hands and said, "Look, this is so vague. We don't know what it means. It's just it's it's unconstitutional to a major part of the act." You know, it's, it's a really serious act. I mean, you and I are talking right now about a case where there are mandatory minimums of 15 years. That's a lot of time, and so got a lot of skin in the game to you know bring these cases up to the Supreme Court. But you know another thing that's changing is really the way that we view drug crimes and the you know changes to federal and state drug laws are, are changing pretty rapidly. The Congress a couple years passed the bipartisan first step act which changed a lot of the uh, you know these drug crimes. And so a lot of that is tied into the Armed Career Criminal Act which is about firearms but sort of touches on every bit of criminal law particularly drug crimes. So I think that's why it's coming up. And I, I, I don't expect it to end anytime soon. Do you think that the, you know, the Supreme Court's recent expansion of the Second Amendment has an effect on this or not at this point? Well, you know, that's sort of in the background of this case is the Armed Career Criminal Act really does deal a lot with individuals who can't possess a firearm because they're a felon. And the Supreme Court, the case that they just heard, Rahimi, really sort of brought up a lot of these issues that the justices are having is is that, you know, the idea of incapacitating or taking away guns from these people is that they're dangerous. But if your felony is for something like, you know, wire fraud or your felony is something that's not violent, is it really constitutional to take their, their guns away? You know, that's their Second Amendment right. And so, you know, this is very much in the background of these cases, but it wasn't mentioned at all during argument. Kimberly, I really enjoyed your story about the federal public defenders because we rarely hear about them and they don't get enough credit. Thanks so much. That's Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge Robinson. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street. 
The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.